Thank you for downloading this sermon brought to you by the preaching ministry of Liberty Baptist Church of Las Vegas, Nevada, Dr. David Tice. For more sermons in both audio and video format, we encourage you to visit experienceliberty.com. Also, for a word of encouragement, insight, and biblical inspiration, follow Pastor David Tice's blog at davidtice.com. So without further ado, let's open our hearts to the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, let's open them up. We're going to go starting tonight. We're going to start in the book of Mark, and we're going to look at Mark chapter 2 and verse number 17. I hope you're having a good week so far. You made it halfway through it, and uh, you're on the downward scale, and guess what? There are kids in Awana. It's so neat being part of this church. I looked back there as I came into the service tonight, and there are just dozens and dozens and probably a couple hundred or so young people back there. There's a youth ministry going on. There's a Spanish ministry going on. There's a single moms thing going on. There's a college and career age thing tonight. I'm just so thankful to be part of Liberty Baptist Church, aren't you? And if you're a guest with us tonight, I'm so thankful you're here tonight. We're going to look at the Word of God together. And tonight, we are in the middle of a study that we started last week, and we're talking about this idea that words matter. You know that, don't you? That the words we say matter. See if you can remember this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but isn't that the worst lie? It's a huge lie. I'll bet that there's somebody in here that if I were to ask them, tell me about somebody that bullied you uh, before you were 15 years old. If we're being real and if we're being authentic in here, probably somebody like, oh, I can tell you about Johnny. Johnny in the fourth grade was just a ruthless villain. What did he do? He stole my red vines. Okay, I don't know what he did. But, or he, he said something to you or they made fun of you because words truly do matter. And the words that we find in the scripture are inspired by God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, don't go there, you can look it up later. The Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. When we look at the word of God, it is not just the thoughts in the Bible that are important. It's not just the general theme or just the general idea. The words truly do matter. And so last week, we looked at the words of the Bible, and we're going to look tonight at a word that has been used and bantered around a hundred different times and used, and tonight we want to look and see what the word of repentance mean. In Mark chapter 2, in verse number 17, and when Jesus heard it, he said unto them, they that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Oh, if Jesus' purpose on this earth was to call sinners to repentance, if that's what he came here for, then we should know what repentance is. So tonight we want to take the next few minutes to uh, open up our study notes, open up the Word of God, and understand what the word repentance is as we look through this important word, because words matter in Scripture. And if we don't have a clear understanding of this, we can be led into fables or doctrines. We can adopt things that are not biblical, and we can pursue things that are not pleasing to the Lord. So tonight, we want to understand what the biblical word for repentance is. If you're with me, say yes. Lord, in the next few minutes, help me to communicate with uh, accuracy what your word teaches in Jesus' name. Amen. The word repentance in the Old Testament means this. It's a contrition or remorse with an action. 
So there is a duplicitous sense of what in the Old Testament the word repentance means. In fact, you can follow along in your notes and you can write in the notes and fill this out. It means to have a contrition or the actual word means to do this. Oh, oh, that's what the word repentance means many times in Scripture. But it will have varied meanings. We'll see that in a little bit. In the New Testament, Overall, the predominant theme of the Old Testament word is that it's contrition, remorse, or it might have an action in the New Testament. It means to change your mind. If you don't have a copy of the notes, raise your hand because some diligent volunteers who just love the Lord and saw the need and are taking the lead are going to help you have one of those. So tonight, as we look at repentance, let's see what, first of all, it means in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for repentance is the Hebrew word nacham, okay? It gets that real guttural sound. If you want to practice your Hebrew tonight, you can say nacham with me. Try it together. One, two, three. Nacham. Oh, you guys sound so... Yeah, horrible would be one word, okay? The Hebrew word means this. Now, check this out. Have you ever looked at a dictionary and seen, oh, this is the primary meaning? but then there's an alternative meaning or a third and sometimes a tertiary meaning and sometimes a, a fourth derivation of what that meaning is. The Old Testament word for repentance, translated repentance in the New Testament, excuse me, in the Old Testament comes from the Hebrew word nakam, which means this, to feel regret or sorrow. Now check this out. It also means to feel pity, okay? Uh, similar words, but they, but they have a duplicitous meaning. I can feel sorrow over something, but I can also feel sorry for someone. Does that make sense? So I might feel sorry if I got caught because I ate the last of the Ben and Jerry's peanut butter cup ice cream that was in there. I, I feel bad about it because I ate the whole thing, okay? But I might feel sorry for the person who actually purchased it and put it there in the back so nobody would find it, okay? So there's a difference there. I feel sorry in one way or I feel sorry in another way. Very similar words, but they have a different meaning. So I feel regret, sorrow, pity, or to breathe strongly. That's what the literal case means is a... (sighs) I had a friend say, after listening to the sermon on Sunday, we talked about how children are arrows, and we're supposed to shoot the arrows God gives us to be bows, and you point the direction on where the children are supposed to be. And my friend said that his wife told him on the way home, we should shoot our arrows over the wall and just leave them there. That's something that he said. Okay? Because when you're with your children, sometimes you're just like, ah, you know that feeling if you're a mom or a dad, okay? So repentance, now check this out. Repentance is used in a number of different ways. Let's see how it's used in the Old Testament. Sometimes the word repentance is used as a human emotion as it is in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 17, where the Bible says, and it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people will repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. So here is a decision of human emotion. The word repent here is using the context of we come here oh no, we're afraid, this is bad news, not what we were expecting, we need to go back to Egypt. Uh, It was better to be a slave than be out here in the wilderness. The word repentance in this context is used to demonstrate human emotion. Notice how it's used in uh, the second case. And these are just samples of scripture. It's used to demonstrate God's character. 
Check out Numbers 23 and verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. God never lies. He always tells the truth. Now, this one's an important one. I would mark this maybe in my notes so that you can come back to it. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should, what's the next word? Repent. Oh, he's not going to go back on what he says. He's not going to change. He is, he's, he's immutable. He hath said, he shall, uh, he, hath he said, and he shall not do it? Or hath he spoken, and he shall not make it good? God's character is that when he tells the truth, he doesn't go back on the truth that he says. If God makes you a promise, he will keep that promise 100% of the time. He never goes back. He never finds a loophole. God always tells the truth. Number three, the word repentance is used about the unchanging nature of who God is. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, and this says verse 19, so I'm going to read to you what 29 is. As I gave, went through the notes tonight, I realized that I gave her uh, the wrong scripture. It's verse 29 of 1 Samuel chapter 15. You can change it in your notes, and uh, I'll read to you what it says. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, and also the strength of Israel, talking about God, also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. It's referring to the immutability of God. God does not change. Once he says this is going to happen, it's going to happen. When he says everlasting life, he means everlasting life. When he says my word shall not return void, it will not return void. The Bible teaches us that if you, uh, God will not be mocked for whatsoever man soweth, what will happen? That shall he also reap. God does not change. He is immutable as demonstrated, and forgive me for not putting the right scripture on the screen for Samuel chapter 15, and it's verse 29 if you want to look at that. Number four, the Bible tells us that God will not repent. Look what the Bible says in, verse, in Psalm chapter 110, verse number four. The Lord hath said and hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay? So here he is talking about the Lord doesn't change. The Lord doesn't change. The Lord doesn't change. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, this is the thing that I want you to see. The Bible tells us that the Lord will repent. Now, if you've been following along in the last three scriptures, it says, the Lord will not repent. The Lord will not repent. The Lord will not repent. Look at this scripture. Psalm 135, verse 14. For the Lord will judge his people, and he will what? Whoa, 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 whoa. We just blew up our whole understanding of the word of God. There's errors, there's flaws all throughout the word of God, and this is just a demonstration because we just read three different scriptures that said, the Lord will not repent, the Lord will not repent, the Lord's the same yesterday, today. He's immutable, it does not change. But here in verse number uh, one, chapter 135 and verse 14, do you see what the scripture says? And if you don't believe what's on the screen, you can read it in your Bible. The Bible says, for the Lord will judge his people and he will what? Whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on? Do we have a contradiction of terms here? Do we have a problem here? And the answer is no. Because the word repent here is used in a tertiary or a third sense from its primary usage, okay? If you go back to what the definition is, this is, part, this is the part of studying scripture I love whenever you find things like this. The Bible says to feel sorrow, pity, or breathe strongly. When the Bible says he will repent himself concerning his servants, what that means is he feels pity for you. 
He is able to be affected. You ever seen some hard dude who doesn't even care? Watches a movie, an old yeller dies, and they're like, good. You know that kind of guy? He's like, ha, ha, get that dog. Guy who likes to run over pigeons? What kind of person does that? Okay? And they're like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Bible-believing Baptist. Yeah, what, kind of person, what kind of person doesn't have any heart? What kind of person is just mean and coarse and just angry all the time? The Bible says that's not our God. The Bible teaches us that our God is a person who will repent himself. Oh, using a, de- a tertiary or a secondary definition of what the word repent is, that means this, when you go through sorrow or when you come to him with a need, he's not like, figure it out yourself, you knucklehead. That's not our God. The word repent here is used in the fashion to say, oh, they need help. Now, that's so important because as you go through the scripture and in our English understanding, we are constantly using it in this one manner, we can be mixed up as to what the context of scripture is. How do we know the difference? This is a a great interpretation of how we understand the Bible. The context drives the definition, okay? Let me say it again. The context drives the definition, For instance, there are times in the Old Testament where the Bible refers to the angel of the Lord as a theophany or an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ in human flesh. And when that term angel of the Lord is used, the Bible tells us that the saints or the people that are around there, they bow down to the Lord. And they're like, oh, you are the Lord. You're the Lord, Joshua. In Joshua chapter 6, when he sees the angel of the Lord, oh, he bows down to the Lord. But then other places, the term angel of the Lord will appear and nobody bows down. Well, is that a theophany or is that Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? No. How do you know? Because context drives the definition. It's the exact same words used, but the context is driving the definition. Lest you think that we're trying to make stuff up, notice how we work with our English definitions of words, okay? Context drives the definition. I read. The word read can be used in two different, the exact same word can be used in two different ways. When it's used as a verb, or when it's used in this context, the subject of a verb is saying, I read the book. I read the book, okay? The exact same word. How do I say it? Read the book, or read your Bible daily. Exact same word, but it's, and it's used similarly, but it has a different definition. If you're tracking with me, say yes. Okay, so when the Bible uses the word repent, and we say, especially in the Old Testament, specifically in the Old Testament, when somebody will take from Psalm 135 and verse 14 and say, look, you don't have, the Bible contradicts itself. No, it doesn't. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. Never does the Bible contradict itself because the same person wrote Genesis all the way through Revelation. So how do I know what definition is being used? Understand that God uses language. And so in that language, I can use the exact same word, and though it's similar in definition, it has a different meaning between read your Bible daily or I read the Bible or I read the book. Here's another illustration. The word arm. The word arm can be used in the English language to say the military arm of force. Okay? Which arm of the military are you in? I'm a Marine. I'm in the Army. I'm in the Navy. Aim high, fly high, I'm in the Air Force. Okay? Awesome. Okay? That's the military arm of force. Now, here's the verb form in the imperative. Arm yourself for battle. 
Is it the same thing? No. The first arm is like a branch. It's a, it's a, a division of the military. The second arm is bring up arms for yourself. Get ready to go to war, okay? And then the third one is, I've got a boo-boo on my arm, okay? Is arm used inappropriately in any one of those? No. They're all used appropriately, but they have a different context or a different meaning. They're all the right word for the situation, but the word can have a different nuance. And what drives the nuance? It drives into, uh, what drives the definition is the context drives the definition. Okay, last one. And I know I'm being very cerebral tonight, but it's so important to understand this because you'll watch a YouTube video or a Facebook video will come up and somebody will say, you've got to have this repentance. If you don't have this repentance, what about repentance? And with that repentance, we can get driven into a narrative that the Bible isn't teaching. Okay, last one, and I'll show you this. The word fair. Here's a sentence where we use the word fair. I don't think it's fair that I burn my fair skin when I go to the fair. (laughs) Same word, isn't it? Exact same word, but it has a different meaning depending on the context. Now, with that as a basis for understanding, when we understand the word of God, there is no contradiction in Psalm 135 versus what the Bible says in Exodus. The Lord does not repent. The Lord repents concerning his servants. There's no contradiction. In fact, they very much complement each other. But sometimes the studious uh, theologian, which all of us are here, students of the Bible, students of who God is, will have to take a more diligent approach to understanding Scripture whenever we come across seemingly troublesome passages like Psalm 135, verse 15, where it says, uh, where it says, for the Lord will judge his people and repent himself concerning his servants. The word repent there is the idea of I will have pity, I will have sorrow, I will be, um, I will be gracious to this person. I'm, I can be affected by that person, okay? New Testament. The New Testament word is the Greek word metaneo. The Greek word metaneo does not have the same meaning that the Old Testament word has. The Old Testament word means to go, oh, or to sigh, or to have a feeling of remorse, or to have a change of behavior. That's what the word repent might be. But the word in the New Testament doesn't have that, oh, feeling. It comes from a different Greek word. The Greek word is the Greek word metaneo. That word literally means to change your mind. That's what the word means. It means to change your mind about an action. Now, sometimes people will be guilty of taking the Old Testament definition of something and applying it into a New Testament context. And that's an understandable error from time to time. In fact, the word of God is seamless, but understand it was taken and translated. So when we as English readers, and I hate to do this because everyone can understand the Bible, but when people want to put us into a pigeonhole of the Bible has errors or the Bible has problems, or this is what the Bible really means, then we take a deeper understanding of what the Bible says and say, okay, no, this is what the Bible is teaching, not what some YouTube blogger is telling us. Okay. The word means to do this. To, to change a person's mind. Here's a couple of the usages in the New Testament, Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What was the message there? The word repent 
was to this group of, of Jewish believers who thought just because our great-great-grandfather was Abraham, we're accepted by God. Just because Moses was our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, God's accepting us. Because Moses and because Abraham, and we went through Babylonian captivity, and God has preserved his choice nation, Israel, we are good. We're good because we have the, God, because we have, we have the heritage of Moses and Abraham, and we have all these forefathers. And here in Mark chapter 15, he's challenged them, you got to change your mind about this, and you better believe the gospel. Because it doesn't matter what heritage or lineage you come from, you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Interesting. You have to understand the gospel. You have to change your mind, number two, about the fact that your heritage does not save. In Romans chapter 11, verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Heritage does not save. It is somebody who's going to come out of Zion. There is a deliverer, not the fact that you are an Israelite that saves you. It is the deliverer that's going to save you and take you from the ungodliness of being a person. Emotions can stir life change. This is interesting. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 through 10, now rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorrow after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us, uh, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now this is cool. Emotions can stir a change of mind. But what's fascinating here is that emotions can stir, but there's a difference between emotions. Somebody might say, well, when I got saved, I was crying. I was just so crying. That's awesome. But emotions don't mean salvation. Somebody might say, I was just so happy. I was so happy. I got saved. That's awesome. But emotions do not bring salvation. There has to be a change of mind. Sometimes godly sorrow will bring you to a change of mind, but sometimes uh, emotion has nothing to do with salvation. Repentance precedes conversion. Check this out. The Bible says in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. What's this teaching us? It teaches us that repentance comes. There has to be a change of a mind that brings to a conversion. That repentance, oh, I have changed my mind about this thing. Being Jewish won't get me to heaven. Being Baptist won't get me to heaven. These good works won't get me to heaven. None of those things will get me to heaven. The thing that gets me to heaven is the fact that I am a sinner and somebody, the deliverer of Zion, has paid for my sins. Repentance proceeds, oh, I have a change of my mind. How do I get to that change of my mind? Well, number five, emotions are not a test of salvation. Second Corinthians 7, 8 says, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. That doesn't make me sad. Or that, doesn't, that doesn't change my mind. Though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were for but a season. Emotions are not the test of salvation. Just because somebody cries or somebody's happy or somebody uh, changes a number of things doesn't mean that there's salvation. Grace is the metric of salvation, not action. So good here. The Bible says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Grace is the thing that brings salvation, not repentance, not an action. And this is where we oftentimes get up. 
We get to a place that says, well, I must be saved because I have changed my actions. I gave up smoking. I no longer say bad words. I restored my marriage. I'm now a good dad. I must be saved. If any of those things got a person saved, then we shouldn't have put Jesus on a cross. If being a good man, if being a good dad could save a person, then let this cup pass from me. If being baptized could save a person, then let this cup pass by me. No, there is no good deed that, that gets me to heaven. There's no, oh, now I'm saved, and now this is what's bringing me to salvation. No, it's only the grace of God that bringeth salvation. It's appeared to all men. Everybody is eligible for salvation. In fact, the Bible tells us Christ died for the whole world, so there's not just a select few that were chosen out. No, salvation is given, and it's given freely to anyone who will call upon it. And the Bible says in 1 Peter that um, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The word of God is for all people at all times in any place. We have the responsibility. Are we going to change our mind? Are we going to repent about our good works, the fact that there is or is not a God, our, our traditions, our abilities? Are we going to repent of our dead works and put our faith in Jesus Christ? Repentance is necessary, but repentance is not, I gave up smoking. Repentance is not, I'm now a good husband. Repentance is not, I've stopped saying bad words. Repentance is, I've changed my mind about what gets a person to heaven, and I recognize it's only Jesus that gets me. Okay, what about the sinner's prayer? Can a person just say the sinner's prayer and be saved? This is so good. It is importance for assurance of salvation. Romans chapter 10, the Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Notice what the scripture says in Romans chapter 10 and verse number 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever, in the Bible says, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. A person praying a sinner's prayer is, I, be I believe, the best method for a person to have assurance of their salvation, to demonstrate their call and their belief and their faith on Jesus Christ. That's why we emphasize it heavily here. You need to put an ask into Jesus because Jesus said, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So you want to come to Jesus and with a prayer request say, dear Jesus, will you please save me? If a person says to Jesus, dear Jesus, will you please save me? God's not going to say, did you really mean it? He doesn't do that. He's like, uh, show me in the scripture where you mean that from. The Bible, anyone who comes to Jesus and says, I'm a sinner, Jesus, would you save me? He saves that person. Now, check this out. Number two, the sinner's prayer is not a conglomeration. It says mailed words here. This is my fault. Of magic words, okay? It is not a conglomeration of magic words. If you say these magic words in this order, salvation. So say these special words in this special order, salvation. Alakazoo, michigaboo, a bippity boppity boo. Put them together and what do you got? Heaven! No, that's not, this is not magic words, okay? So salvation is not putting together this series of magic words and when you put them in the right syntax and you get a good cadence when you're praying to the Lord and you bring it with a sincerity and a heartfelt attitude in a church service after an invitation and just as I am is being played, you shall go into the prayer. That's not salvation. But it's important for assurance of salvation and it is not a conglomeration of magic words. 
a sinner's prayer must follow a gospel presentation. It must follow a gospel presentation. What is necessary for a person to be saved? I believe there's three components necessary for a person to be saved. Number one, there must be an understanding of who I am. What am I? Well, you don't have to say it right out loud. We're in church. We all know it. But some of you are just like really quick to say that too. I'm a sinner. Okay, well, you are too. Okay, well, we're all sinners, aren't we? Okay, so there has to be an understanding that I am a sinner. If I think I'm good enough or I'm Baptist enough or I'm preacher enough or I'm whatever enough, then, then I don't need a Savior. If I'm good enough to get on my own, then let this cup pass from me. Okay? I have to understand I am a sinner. And my sin's so bad that I deserve to go to a place called hell. Okay? Number two, what's the second necessary aspect for salvation? Did somebody pay for my sin? How is my sin paid for? The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, died on a cross to pay for our sins, was buried and rose again to prove that his payment, his sacrifice, was good enough to pay for our sins. So, here I am. I understand I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus paid for my sin, and I believe the third component is reaching out to Jesus and making that transaction. How do I make that transaction? I believe it's the sinner's prayer. You say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. It's a prayer request. It's coming to Jesus and saying, I'm a sinner. You're the Savior. Can I have your righteousness because you've already paid for my sin? And when I make that transaction with Jesus, I become a son of God. It's literally that simple. Now, is it complex? And can it baffle our minds? I hope it does. I hope it baffles your mind that Christ would take care of all of your dirty, rotten, filthy, malfeasance, sin. I hope it baffles your mind every single day because it should. But he makes it as simple so that um, a PhD could get it, right? A A high school grad can get it, right? What's the term that he says? What kind of person needs to, what kind of faith do we need to have to come to Christ with? Childlike faith. It's childlike. Well, I have studied and I've got these letters behind my name. Well, pin a rose on your nose. It's, ch- it's childlike faith that gets us to Jesus. That's what comes to Jesus. What is the childlike faith? I'm a sinner. So can a four-year-old be saved? 100%. Can a 12-year-old be saved? Yes. Can a 75-year-old person who's lived a horrible life, reprobate, atheistic against God, and lived his life in complete debauchery towards the things of God? I certainly hope so. Because I just believe that the precious blood of Jesus can pay for anybody's sin. It must follow, a sinner's prayer must follow a gospel presentation. So if tonight I was talking about, I love pianos, and pianos are good, and pianos are just a wonderful thing, I love pianos, and this is a keyboard, and I've been talking about it like it's a piano. Isn't that amazing? And I love America. And I love America. Don't you love America? Who here wants to be saved? Okay, there's, there's no gospel presentation there. Okay, I can talk about pianos and I can talk about that, but the gospel presentation, and so what is a gospel presentation going to always entail? The fact that I'm a sinner, the fact that Jesus is a savior, and there must be a time when I put that transaction in what Jesus did. I literally take his righteousness for my sin. So when was the transaction made in your life? And this is what's fascinating. There is no person who has always been saved. 
Let me say that again. There's no person who has always believed. There is a definite point, an event, when a person trusts Christ as their Savior. Jesus referred to it this way in John chapter 3 as being born again. Well, I've just, I've just kind of always believed. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. Because nobody has always believed. There has to be that point of birth. There has to be that born-again experience. To quote the guy who gives out salvation, his name is Jesus. Ye must be what? Born again, he says in John chapter 3. It should be welcomed and promoted. A sinner's prayer should be something that we applaud, not, well, they just said a prayer. That's the only way a person receives salvation. How do you know they're saved? Well, they gave a $10,000 check. They must really be saved. If that's the measure of salvation, some of us are never going to get to heaven. And if that is the measure of salvation, there's a whole lot of bad people who can write a $10,000 check, and that's kind of messed up. How do we know a sinner's prayer should not be something that is dismissed? Well, they just, they just said this prayer, and they think they're saved. Then tell me how a person gets saved. Well, they have to have this point of repentance, and they have to come to an understanding about their sin. And what does that look like? Well, they, they feel a deep remorse. Oh, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they change their mind. It doesn't have to do anything with feelings. Well, they, they have to start changing the way they live. They, they're still living with their girlfriend, or they're still smoking cigarettes, and, and they're dealing with addiction, and, and they're really saved, even though they're dealing with this, this bad stuff. Oh, so a person has to give up living with their girlfriend, or a person has to give up this vice, or stop this, and that's the measure of salvation? Doesn't seem to be the case in Scripture. Salvation comes by grace. Now, this is not a license to sin. In fact, the Bible says in Romans, we read it a few minutes ago, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. No, God forbid. You don't just say, well, I could sin and do whatever I want because I'm saved. Oh, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth, the Bible says. And be not deceived, God's not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. So God knows how to deal with sinners, uh, Christians who are sinners. But how do I get salvation? I go to God and say, I'm a sinner. You're the Savior. Would you save me? Done deal. Is it that easy? If it's not, I'm messed up. And I, I would probably say that most of you in here are messed up too. If it's more complicated than that, if you're trusting something else, then please share with the rest of us <laughs> because I don't want to go to hell. Number five, a sinner's prayer is an evidence of authentic conversion. A sinner's prayer is evidence of authentic conversion. Okay? The Bible says in Luke chapter 6 and verse number 45, a good man out of the tr good treasures of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. An evil man out of the evil treasures out of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, the what? Mouth speaketh. If someone is willing to say aloud to the Lord, I'm a sinner, you're the Savior, will you please save me? You know what that demonstrates? Those words demonstrate, according to Scripture, not your feelings, not your experience, According to Scripture, those words demonstrate something's going on in his heart. Well, I know people that have lied to me. Good. You're human. <laughs> You're not one of those aliens we've been hearing about on Fox News. Okay? You know people who have lied to you. Awesome. That's great. We all know people who have lied to us. 
But this is what the Bible says. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. If somebody's willing to call out upon Jesus, that's a pretty good evidence that they need a Savior and that they're receiving salvation. Don't overcomplicate it. What about unrepentant Christians? Here's a Christian. They say they got saved, but they're doing, and you fill in the blank for whatever sin. Okay? This is really cool. All people sin. Well, I, well, I know all people sin, but, but they do one of the bad ones. Oh, okay. Um, the Bible says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. So this is talking about somebody who is a believer, but they sin. This is a Christian. Guess what? Christians sin. If you didn't sin today, good job. You'll probably mess up before midnight. And I don't want to discourage you. I'm just saying it's, chances are. You'll probably mess up before midnight. And don't raise your hand if you haven't sinned because then it's pride over. Okay? So we all sin. Notice what the Bible says we do. And he's not talking to lost people. He says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, you're walking in the spirit, you're loving the Lord, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You know what that scripture shows us? That you're capable of doing any sin. You could be tempted to steal. Have you ever been tempted to steal? Has any, don't raise your hand. Has anyone ever given you the incorrect change? And it's more? And you've thought, <laughs> thief! Why? Because well, it, was, it was really their fault. Thief. I did. Thief. We're all tempted. We're all tempted, the Bible says. So when I see somebody who's overtaken in a fault, if I'm spiritual, I go and I try to restore such a one, considering myself, why? Lest I'm also tempted. He says, bear ye one another's burdens. You know what that means? You have different problems than I have. I might be dealing with being a thief today. You might be dealing with selfishness. We help each other. Why? Because you've got problems, I've got problems. We all have got problems. So fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, I have come to the place of loving the Lord. I am basically the model Christian. <laughs> For if a man thinketh himself to be something, well, I, I'm a Christian, I would never do that. I just don't think saved people would ever do those things. If they're really saved, would they really do that? If a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. He's lying to himself. But every man, let every man prove his own work. And then shall he have rejoicing of himself alone and not another. For every man shall bear his own burden. It's easy to look at an unrepentant Christian and say, well, look at what they're doing. And I've named a couple of different sins. You fill in whatever sin you want. Look at what they're doing and how could they be a Christian? And the point is this, all Christians, all people mess up. There are three different types of sin. I'm not going to go into this. There's private sin. The private sin is where I sin and it's against God and God alone. I look at Al and I see that awesome black shirt. Look at Al sitting over there with his arm around Gabby. They're just like in love. Looks like they're married and having a good life together. And I just admire their marriage. But I really like that shirt. Wish I had a shirt like that. He must, he must not give to missionaries as much as I do to be able to afford a, a shirt like that. God, I hate that shirt that he's got. Would you... Lord. You're right, Lord. It's wrong. I shouldn't covet his shirt. Okay? I've sinned. 
okay? I've coveted his shirt, okay? That's a sin between who? God and I. I deal with that sin between God and I. But, if I be, but now it becomes a, private, a personal matter. How do I deal with personal sin? I look at Al and I'm like, Al, did you steal that shirt, you big creep? Whoa! At that moment, it's no longer just between God and I. It's become between God, me, and Al. And I can't just go to God and be like, hey, God, I shouldn't have called Al a creep. Will you forgive me? God forgives me, but you know what he says? Leave your gift at an altar. Go and make things right with him. Then come back and let's fellowship together. So in order to be right with God, I need to go to Al and say, hey, Al, I shouldn't have called you a creep. I don't think you're a creep. You can't be a creep. Gabby's been married to you for 20 plus years. She's got, you got a good thing going, okay? What's a public sin? A public sin is when I look at Al and in front of an entire church, I call him a creep. Who does that? <laughs> so how do I make public sin right? I confess it. I shouldn't have called church. I shouldn't have called Al a creep. Will you forgive me for calling you a creep, Al? It was just all sake for, it was for the Lord. But uh, if, you'll, if you'll forgive me, okay? So there are three types of sin. In those three types of sin, private sin is confessed privately, personal sins confessed personally, public sin is confessed publicly, okay? The Bible tells us this, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between he and them alone. I'm not going to read through the entire thing because I want to get you out on time. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 20 teaches this, this. The process is, I go and make things right privately, if it's a private sin, personally, if it's a personal sin, publicly, if it's a public sin, okay? What about church discipline? Holy Christians do bad things. The Bible word for Christians is oftentimes used in the word saints. So that Sarah is a saint. Saint Sarah. Isn't that awesome? Saint Sarah. Saint Seth. <laughs> Isn't that a good one? Use that next time Ashley gets mad at you. I'm a saint. Okay? Don't do that, actually. Don't try that. Okay? Saint Stan. Saint Mike. Holy Christians, you are holy before a great and awesome God, but sometimes you do bad things. The Bible says this, I have written unto you not to keep company of any man that is called a brother. This is guy's a Christian, and he be a fornicator. Christians fornicate? Are Christians supposed to fornicate? No. Thank you for the person who said that loudly with me. The rest of you are a little suspect on this one, Okay. <laughs> Should Christians fornicate? No. But look here. Sometimes Christians fornicate. Sometimes Christians get covetous. Should Christians be covetous? No. Sorry about the whole shirt thing, Al. Or an idolater. Now check this out. Look how serious this sin is. A Christian can even... Now you say, would a Christian, would a Christian worship an idol? And I say this respectfully, and I want to be careful about this, but I believe that there are people who trust Christ as their Savior that will oftentimes go into a place where there are icons of St. Peter and St. Mary and St. whoever, and they will worship those people. They know Christ as their Savior. I believe they're genuinely saved. But there are times when they, oh, don't, don't mess with that icon. Can I use the word idol here? Or a railer. Christians aren't supposed to rail against people. They're not supposed to. You're not supposed to yell. You're supposed to be kind. You're not supposed to be a railer. You're not supposed to be a drunkard. Do Christians ever get drunk? They do. Or an extortioner. What's that mean? They take advantage of people. They rip 
people off. They have business dealings that are less than honorable. He says, with such a one, know not to eat. Well, they're a Christian, so yeah, it's all right that they get drunk every once in a while. No, the Bible says don't hang out with that person. They're a Christian. They're living with their, uh, they're living with their living boyfriend or girlfriend. They're living together. Oh, the Bible says don't hang out. Don't go to Buffalo Wild Wings with that guy. Don't go to Starbucks with that guy. Don't hang out. You're, you're wrong to have dinner with that person because they're a fornicator. And the purpose of any relationship with somebody who is a Christian and doing what is wrong is to confront them about their sin. Just like our purpose with somebody who doesn't know Christ is to confront them about their sin so they can see a Savior. With a Christian, we confront a Christian about their sin so they can see the Savior as well. The Bible says, before we start going around pointing fingers at people, he says, take heed to yourself. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. Let it be done. This is how we work through Christian love. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase and be zealous, therefore, and repent. Oh, so holy Christians, this is amazing. Holy Christians do bad things. It'd be wonderful if you got saved and you stopped doing every bad thing that you ever did. Isn't that, wouldn't that be great? Just didn't happen, though. You have to work in this flesh, and sometimes that flesh will do bad things. Here's some terms to watch for. These are terms that can oftentimes lead into a pharisaical understanding of salvation. When you hear the term lordship salvation, be careful of that. And the reason I challenge people to be careful of that, I'm not saying don't go out and listen to somebody who would, who would believe in lordship salvation. Just understand, a lordship salvation approach is going to say, oh, um, you have to make the Lord the Lord of your life before he will save you, or you're really not saved if you're doing A, B, C, or D sin. Well, if I have to repent and be saved every single time I do a sin, I'm getting saved 40 and 50 times a day. And probably you are too. Number two, be careful of this term, Reformed theology. Now, this is a tricky one because Reformed theologians will oftentimes be some of the most um, socially conservative people in our culture. But a Reformed theology will teach that only certain people can be saved. Only certain elect people can be saved. And so when you read somebody, and they might even have a conservative perspective, a lot of times Baptists are reform in their theology. You might hear somebody and they have a national name or they might be on the news or have a good podcast, and their teaching's really strong, and they teach and they rail against the vices of our culture. Great people, but oftentimes reform theology will have an askew, and let me say it this way, a pharisaical understanding of salvation, okay? The term Calvinism. So as you're studying throughout Scripture and you hear, oh, we're Calvinistic in our approach. Calvinism, there is five tenets to Calvinism. I won't talk to them. Very conservative in their theology. But when you hear the term Calvinism, there should be a little bit of a red flag that comes up because one of the tenets of Calvinism is that a person is already chosen to be saved. God has chosen some people to be saved and he's chosen some people to go to hell. And it doesn't matter what happens, it, it beats down evangelism and it lifts up human merit. Final admonition. The desire for authentic conversion is necessary. We want to make sure that we are saved. But it cannot be predicated upon arbitrary standards or pharisaical observations. Your salvation cannot be dependent upon the fact that, well, I, I don't say bad words anymore, or I'm only sinning 25 times as opposed to 27 last week. I'm getting to a place of zero. That's not salvation. Our salvation, the desire for authentic conversion is necessary but cannot be predicated on arbitrary standards 
or pharisaical observations. Doesn't this sound really smart? I used big words because I was in a very theological uh, tone. Maturity, this is really good. Maturity is not the doubting of salvation. You are not mature when you start to think, well, I don't even know if I'm saved. I don't even know if I'm saved. I don't even, that, that's not maturity. In fact, I'll show you that in a second. But maturity comes with the confidence of Christ's forgiving nature and grace. How do I know that? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 2, I fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet are ye now able. He says, I want you to grow. If you're going to be a mature Christian, mature Christians aren't always drinking milk. You're going to have a steak every once in a while. You're going to have a burger. Isn't this a wonderful admonition that to being a vegan is against the word of God? Isn't that fantastic? Notice what Hebrews chapter 5 says. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seen. Now check this out. If you are constantly doubting your salvation or your assurance of salvation is based upon, well, I don't do this anymore, and I don't do this anymore, or I don't do this anymore, and it's not based upon the fact that you came to Jesus as a sinner, he saved you as a God, as the God, and as the God of salvation, he gives you eternal life. If your salvation is based upon anything else, you're living an immature, milk-filled formula Christianity. The Bible says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. I'm not so wise now. No, I'm dull of hearing. For, for when, for the time you ought to be teachers, you've been saved for so long, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are becoming such as have need of milk. You should be past this salvation thing. Why? You've been saved for however long. There's a time of, okay, I'm nurturing, I'm, I saved, I'm really saved, but there comes a time, if you've been saved for five years, you shouldn't be going through and wrestling with the doubts of your salvation. You're, you're becoming a full-grown man. For everyone, or woman, for everyone that useth milk is unskillful. Notice this, a person who's constantly circling back to, are you saved? Are you saved? Are you really saved? Are you really saved? My son-in-law did this. My daughter did this. I don't know that they're saved. You are unskillful. The Bible doesn't say this is maturity. You're unskillful in the word of righteousness. And the Bible says, for he is a babe. Why do we talk about that? Because this word repentance is oftentimes used as a way to keep us immature as Christians. And God desires for us to grow as disciples. Words matter. And the word repentance is a great word that matters for our growth as disciples of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the time together tonight. I pray that you'd use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that message was an encouragement to your heart. Now for weekly updates and for information about Liberty Baptist Church, be sure to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at LBC of Las Vegas. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, God bless.